God's Word. You know, it's been probably, I don't know, four or five years since I've been here last. Um, and every time I've come in the past, the church has always changed so much. One thing that's really neat is I do recognize some faces, but the church is always more people here than the last time I was here. So I think the first time I visited is uh, probably in 2007 or eight. And you were very soon uh, supporters of us because we were missionaries at the time. And then just over the years, trying to visit every year. So I just, this is just a delight to be back here. I'm very thankful. I just want to say thanks to Pastor Cliff. I think he said he's going to be watching right now. So I'm just very grateful that he's giving me this opportunity. And I hope sometime to have lunch with him or meet up. So Cliff, when you're available, let me know and we'll do that. But it's so good to be here with you. My family couldn't be here. My wife, I think, has bronchitis. But she was very, very sad that she couldn't join this morning. Um, My kids are a little bit older now. Uh, They were young, as you knew them, but now they're 18, 15, and 12. Uh, Our oldest is in college, which is uh, really a crazy thing. But we can talk about that afterwards. Um, In 2019, I uh, I was... um, You knew me through civil servant ministries, uh, this wonderful ministry ministering to our political leaders, and in 2019 handed the ministry off to Kurt Fleck, who's been very, very faithful. I just want to encourage you, get involved with him and that ministry. He does a lot of wonderful work over there, so very proud of uh, Kurt. Uh, But in 2019, handed the ministry to Kurt and accepted a position as a pastor at a church up by Peoria, kind of a larger church. And uh, about a year ago, I stepped down. It uh, simply just a little about two and a half years there, and it really was not working out well. Um, so Christy and I had talked about that, talked with the elders, and just decided, you know, this isn't, this wasn't meant to be. So look, we're looking at our family and saying, you know, we uh, um, aren't really ready to just up and move. We'd only been in the area for two and a half years. The kids start getting established, and just to uproot them and move so I can be a pastor wasn't really a very wise or loving thing to do. So we stayed in the area, and I decided I'd find a job because you got to pay the bills somehow. (laughs) So I actually, I'm a financial advisor today with Edward Jones. God uh, opened up a pretty incredible door. Just as I was leaving uh, vocational ministry, Pretty incredible door opened up there and uh, get to oversee the office in East Peoria. So financial advisor with Edward Jones, that's what I do today. I actually, I love it. There's a lot of counseling that goes with that, just really spending time getting to know people. I love that, very similar to the counseling I did as a pastor, just as opposed to, the starting point is what's different. You know, as opposed to starting with people and you see kind of some problems and you're getting in and then money usually gets into the picture somewhere. Well, now I'm starting with money and getting to deeper things. So it's a different starting point. Um, But the one thing that I don't get to do is preach. So I don't get to preach to clients. But (laughs) so I look forward to opportunities like this and I'm just grateful for it. But today we're going to be looking at Matthew 27 verses 32 through 44 Uh, This passage, it takes us to the crucifixion of our Lord, and the entire focus of this passage is, well, it's shame, the shame that Jesus bore. And I hope that maybe, you know, as you're looking at this passage, might look at it a little bit differently uh, over the next half hour or so, because we worship a man who was shamed greatly. 
And I think that this passage, unlike any other in Scripture, shows us that side of our Lord Jesus. You know, Jesus, you think about who he was and is, but when he came to earth, he got to choose his own lineage, right? I didn't get to choose who my parents would be. You didn't get to choose who your parents would be or grandparents or those before you, but he actually did. And when you look at the genealogies that are listed in Scripture, you see the people he chose weren't the people I would have chose (laughs) or perhaps you would have chose, but there were a lot of very shamed people that many of them weren't people you'd want to say, "I, I I want to identify with that person. You have someone like who's very shamed like Tamar or shamed like Bathsheba or many others that are part of that lineage. And he said, that's who I'm choosing to be a part of this. Or you look at the way he was born, this kind of outskirts city that wasn't all that popular. Anybody really knew much about at the time, chose to be born there and born in a trough in a barn and really shameful people in his lineage, shameful people in the way, shameful way that he was born. And then the people that Jesus ministered to, who were they? Tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. He identified with shamed people. And so from beginning to end, all the way to what we're seeing today in the crucifixion, a very shamed Savior that we, that has saved us. So this passage, it tells us all about the shame that our Lord carried Really, for what reason that we would share in his glory? So, Matthew 27. Um, Darwin, I don't know. Does everyone stand when you read the word? Or Well, let's, let's do that. That's what I'm used to doing, and I'm already standing. So. <laughs> but uh, Matthew 27, 32 through 44, the word of God says, and I'm reading from the ESV. It says, As they went out, they found a man, Cyre- man of Cyrene, Simon by name. And they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him, Jesus, wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he wouldn't drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And then they sat down. They kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And then the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by, they derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down here from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders, they mocked him, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if God desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with Jesus also reviled him in the same way. Uh, You may be seated. And uh, Let me just pray before we uh, dive into this text a little bit more. Our Heavenly Father, just thank you for the opportunity to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to preach your word. Your word is unfailable, infailable. It is unfailable inspired it is unalterable it is eternal and we have the opportunity to look into it today but lord i pray that we would leave here different than how we came show us what your word has for us for each of us impact us today may your spirit be at work we ask that in your name amen roman uh, statesman his name is cicero and he says this very word cross it should be removed from the person of a roman citizen not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. 
polite people don't talk about crucifixions. Polite people didn't just get to, civilized people didn't just get together and discuss what had just happened and the gore and everything that goes with it. Rome routinely crucified criminals. They, they crucified them by the hundreds, thousands. Hundreds of thousands of people were nailed to trees throughout history. So it wasn't just these three and Jesus being one of the few. Um, it, was a, it was a routine thing. It happened quite often in Roman society. History, it said, history had really sealed the horror of this with so many people being crucified. And by the first century, the cross was historic, even by that time. But it was designed not primarily just to torture and kill somebody. It wasn't just about capital punishment. It was primarily an instrument of shame and humiliation. Foremost, that's what it was about. How do we, how do we, and, and, uh, how do we creatively come up with a way that's going to shame a person to the nth degree before we take their life. That's what the cross was all about. Men who stood against Rome's authority in a region like Spartacus, who led a slave rebellion, or Barabbas, who's mentioned in, this, in, uh, in Matthew's gospel, these were the kinds of men that got crosses because they were insurrectionists. They were disturbers of the peace of the empire. Big crimes. You didn't just have petty thieves that got crosses. Rome didn't just crucify anybody. Uh, they had other means of dealing with lesser criminals. But for those that they considered a threat to the empire and the, anyone they wanted to make an example out of, those kinds of people got crosses because they wanted to be as public and as shameful as they could possibly make it. That's what the cross was all about. It's as if Rome was saying, rebel against us however you may, but in the end, you are going to be forced to submit to us. And not just forced to submit to us, we're going to humiliate you in front of everyone who ever knew you, who ever loved you, and you are going to die disgraced. And so it's really no wonder that Cicero would say that uh, this very word cross should be removed from a person of Roman citizens. We don't think about this kind of stuff. And it's no wonder when we come to Matthew's gospel, he just gives us one line. He doesn't go into the gore and what, here's what really happened. He just says, and they crucified him. And that's it. No, more, no further explanation of what happened. Just, and they crucified him. It, it happened. It happened, moving along, getting to what Matthew wants us to see here. They crucified him. None of the Gospels describe Jesus' torture. None of the Gospels look anything like Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. They don't go into that detail. Gibson captured the gore, but he totally misses the Gospel, the most important part of why Jesus suffered and died. We're not supposed to walk away from today just saying, oh, wow, I mean, Jesus endured all of this pain and all of this, this horrible stuff. And you'd walk away with two things. You'd walk away. If I were to go into all of that, you'd walk away saying, wow, Jesus suffered all of that. I feel really sick. And secondly, Jesus suffered all of that. I feel really guilty that, you know, Jesus did all this for me. I've got to do something for him. That's work salvation, by the way. But that's not why... We don't need to know those details, and the gospel writers don't provide them. Our Lord was crucified. And the point of this passage isn't so we'd reflect upon his torment, his physical torment, but that we'd see the shame that he endured. Matthew doesn't want us to see the pain so much as the shame. And the point of the passage, I think, is that Jesus bore our shame. Why? So we would share in his glory. That we would one day share in his glory. 
Shame is a sense that you aren't acceptable. I dare say every person in this room has dealt with this in different ways or perhaps is different or perhaps is currently dealing with it. Shame is a sense you aren't acceptable. You are broken. You are rejected. You're worthless. And it's something that you don't get over with. You don't just get over easily. There are things that perhaps some of you remember from 50 years ago that happened to you that maybe you haven't told anybody. That's a lot of shame. Shame may be the result of something you did, or it might be the result of something you're completely innocent of and was done against you. But you still carry it, and it sticks to you like tar. And no matter how hard you try, you can't get rid of it. It's with you. You try to hide, making sure nobody knows about this thing in your past. You feel like running anytime somebody gets too close. I'm sure every one of us knows something of what I'm talking about. Shame is not an easy thing to get over. And the way out of shame, I think what we see, what I'm reminded of looking at Jesus, the way out of shame isn't by us running and hiding and making sure nobody knows, but by really coming to the light and being known. Perhaps not by everybody. Not everybody's safe. But Jesus is. And some of his people are. And I hope that's true of us today. It's by going into the light, finding that I actually can talk about that thing that happened in the past, whether I did it or it was against me, and there are people who are safe to talk to. And there are people in the church that will come alongside and pray for me and help me and listen to me and want to minister to me. I pray that our church is more like that, more and more like that, that we're like that, because that's the heart of Jesus. learning to let others in, finding you're actually accepted. Nobody does that better than Jesus does with his own people. Jesus is the one who he pursues the orphan, the alien, and the widow. He's the one who befriended tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners. He understands shamed people, not only because he spent a lot of time with them and pursues them, but because he was one of them. And you may be here today feeling that brokenness, feeling that worthlessness, that, hum- that humiliation, but I think this passage gives you a glimpse into the heart of God who doesn't recoil from shamed people. But I think when you look through Scripture, you find Him not just dealing with shamed people, but pursuing shamed people, even becoming a shamed person. And that gives me hope because this is something, sure, I deal with, something human, all of us deal with. In some way, but not something we really, shame isn't something we really talk about a whole lot. I think this passage, it shows us how Jesus carrying our, carried the shame of our weakness, the shame of our disgrace, shame of rejection in different ways. So the first, look at verses 32 through 34, we'll see just the shame of our weakness. Looking ahead 700 years, Isaiah 53 For prophesy, surely he, the Messiah, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So in some sense, what the Messiah was coming to do is carry our griefs and our sorrows. The NAS puts it this way. He bore our our sicknesses he himself bore and our, our pains he carried. Our griefs, sorrows, sicknesses, pains, all of these carry the idea of weakness. The, the idea that the Messiah would be someone who's going to come and carry our the weaknesses of his people. This doesn't mean that you and I should never be weak because, well, Jesus carried our weakness. We should never be weak. No, 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 no. We have a Savior who 
understands weakness and is powerful in the midst of it. When God took on flesh, he made himself weak. And not just a little weak, he pursued weakness to the nth degree. And you just look at this passage. Here you have God come to earth. Look at the things he endured, the weakness that he endured in this passage. And he chose all of this, willingly chose all of this. But verse 32, it introduces us to a man named Simon. Simon of Cyrene, that's, North Af- that's in North Africa. So Simon walks from, with his family from North Africa, ascends up the hill to Jerusalem. He gets there because they're wanting to celebrate the Passover. And they're excited about celebrating the Passover. And you imagine he's near one of the entrances. He's on a stone walkway. They're about to enter into the city of David. And suddenly he's pulled aside Actually, not even just pulled aside, but he said, he hears, the, hears a Roman voice yell, you carry the cross. You carry it. He's walked all of this way, eager to celebrate the Passover. His family now has to witness some of this. And worse than that, they're not even going to be able to celebrate the Passover. They came, from no, they came for nothing, or so they thought because he's ceremonially defiled now. He's blood all over him. Don't get too close. You know, they would have thought, don't get too close. Don't let it, don't even make eye contact with the Roman soldiers. But it was too late. He's pulled into this thing. He's got to carry the cross because the Lord can't do it. And now he's impure. And we don't know all of the details of what happened with Simon, but it's very interesting. Anytime that the Gospels mention someone by name, it means those who are originally reading these books knew those people by name. So you see, Matthew mentions Simon. And in Mark 15.21, it says, Simon, the father of, of Alexander and Rufus. So these aren't just, to us, these are just random names, you know. But to those who are originally reading these books, they would have said, oh, 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 I know Alexander. I, I, I remember hearing about Rufus. Or, oh, their dad was Simon. And, and Matthew says, this is Simon. And, Matthew, and Mark says, well, the, you know, mentioned Simon as well, that, as if their readers are saying, you know, remember, remember these guys? This was a significant part of their testimony. This is most likely when Simon first believed. He got pulled out of the crowd to do something he never would have wanted to do. And though he was ceremonially defiled now, this man had never been so pure. He became saved. He came to believe in Christ. And the fact that Simon had to carry the crossbeam, it tells us just how weak that Jesus was. He survived a Roman flogging. He had been beaten by soldiers. He could barely walk, likely stumbling with every step. He could go no farther. He needed somebody to help him carry this thing. Hebrews, I'm reminded of Hebrews 4.15, which says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is tempted in every way and yet without sin. We do not have a high priest who can't sympathize with weakness. If anybody understands weakness, it's Jesus. Anybody understands it, it's Him. We're often ashamed of weakness. We don't like to let people know that we're weak. We don't like to even be around weak people. This world is all about power, money, and power. And in our flesh, so are we. We're not naturally different. But if God's done a work in you, we should be different. Here we have Jesus. You know, we're so ashamed of weakness, but Jesus understands weakness. Jesus becomes weakness. 
And no one understands it better than him, and no one is better able to help us in our weakness. So when Jesus arrived at Golgotha, verse 34, it says, They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. The drink, it was a mild narcotic. And it's not as if the Roman soldiers were kind of feeling bad for Jesus and saying, you know, well, we've beaten you this much. Let's give you a narcotic to kind of help you get through this. No, it was because they they knew how racked with pain these men were. Let's give them a narcotic to make our job easier as we drive the nails in their in their wrists. It was to make their job easier. So Jesus, he puts the, that narcotic in his mouth, and he deliberately puts it in his mouth, and he deliberately spits it out. Why would he do that? Because he's showing us this, this isn't a man who's just resigned to his fate and saying, okay, let's just get this over with. But here's someone who's in complete control. And that's why he deliberately puts it in his mouth, deliberately spits it out, because it's showing us he is very much completely in control of what's going on. And he's not going to allow something to dull his senses in this moment. He refused what could have helped him. Racked with pain, he refused what could dull his senses. Hardly able to walk, he's ministering to Simon. John tells us that even on the cross, as he's gasping for breath, he's caring for his mother, Mary. Luke tells us that even in his last moments, at the utmost state state of weakness, he saved the thief who hung next to him. And so he didn't want to be a little, his senses to be a little bit dulled. He wanted them to be sharp. He wanted to be in complete control. He was in complete control. The cross shows us God's power and weakness. And so if you are weak, I am reminded of the, of the passage where the Lord says, Come to me, all of you who are weak and weary, and I will give you rest. Nobody understands weakness and is more able to give rest than Jesus Christ. Secondly, Jesus carried your disgrace, carried our weakness, he carried our disgrace. Verses 35 through 37. Disgrace, it means to be discredited or brought low. You were once here, you are now forced down here. Everything about this scene is disgraceful. The actions are disgraceful. The charge over Jesus' head is disgraceful. But what makes the scene supremely disgraceful is that it's being, being who it's being done against. It's not being done against a mere man. It's being done against Jesus Christ. This is the king of Israel. This is the righteous judge. This is the great creator. This is God himself being brought low. And so the soldiers, they nail him to the cross. They affix the cross beam upright and he's hanging there to die. Their job was mostly complete, but we find in this passage, what do they stay around to do? The job's complete. They're staying around, sure, to guard the body. They don't want anybody anybody taking it down. And once the body's down there, once the body's dead, they're going to take it down and dispose of it. But what do they do in the meantime? Because it's going to be a lot of hours. Well, they're bored and they play games with the crucified's clothing. Who's going? To, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. You know, anything that those who were on the cross owned was forfeit, even their actual clothing. So in one final act of disgrace, remove the clothing and we're going to cast lots to see who gets which fabrics. And all that the the men who hung from the cross, all they could do is look down as this is going on, as thousands of people are streaming by looking at them. It's all they could do. It was heartless. It was utterly disgraceful. And looking ahead nearly a thousand years, Psalm 22, 16 through 18 says this, 
A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them and they cast lots for my clothing. Psalm 22 is directly describing what was going to happen a thousand years later, the passage that we're looking at today. But encompassed by evil men, hands and feet pierced, garments being divided, people staring. And the disgrace runs even deeper than that because this is Israel's Passover. This was supposed to be a day of great celebration. This is Israel's Passover. And you have, as I said, you have thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews streaming into Jerusalem. Well, one of the entrances they're going to go by is this one. Everyone's excited. They've traveled by foot to get there. It would have been an absolutely beautiful scene prior to this. I mean, the temple was like one of the wonders of the world at that time. You have this Herod's temple that's a golden dome. You would have seen the rays of sun shining outward from Jerusalem for miles and miles away. And then you're getting closer and you've got to go by this. And you notice, but probably the worst part, you notice a sign, to any devout Jew, one of the worst parts would have been seeing this sign on the cross that said, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. What do you think Rome's trying to say there? This is your king. Caesar is king. Caesar has power. This man on a cross that's crucified, as you're going to your Passover to celebrate, this is your king. You're under our boot. Jews. Such an insult as any devout Jews going in to celebrate the Passover and seeing this sign. The Lord, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Such a shameful, disgraceful way. And I've often wondered, why in the world did Jesus have to die this way? Now, we understand that the wages of sin is death, right? I understand that. But why this? Why couldn't it have been a more expedient death? Why couldn't it have been a death that just, okay, Jesus is going to die for sin so I can be saved and we can just get it over with? Why did it have to be a crucifixion if it's just death that's necessary? That's well, a good question. But I think 2 Corinthians 5.21 helps a little bit when it says, For our sake, God made him Jesus. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so the question is really, what does God think of sin? He doesn't think it's something that's easily dealt with. He doesn't think that it's something that he can just kind of deal lightly with. It's heinous in his sight. And so if the Savior, if Jesus was going to die for the sins of men, if he was going to become sin, it had to be a heinous death. It had to be a humiliating death, a disgraceful death. And there's only one death in all of human history that could be so disgraceful, it's this. Sure, there's a lot of other ways to die that are torturous and painful, but in terms of just disgrace and utter humiliation, this might be the worst that there ever was. He he couldn't die an honorable death. It had to be a death in which Christ's sacrifice for sinners matched God's hatred for their sin, and so no death was probably more fitting than this. And in all these things, though we remind, the cross reminds us of God's hatred for sin, it also reminds us of God's willingness to save any that will come to Him. 
And I wish we had time to turn to Luke 23. You could look at this later on your own. But Matthew tells us about that Jesus hung between two wicked men that were on the cross. He's in the middle. you got one on his right, one on his left. And they're hurling insults at him. And Matthew kind of stops there. Luke picks up the narrative and he says, but one of these men stopped hurling insults. He says, one man confessed. He stopped hurling insults and he confessed he was receiving the due reward for all his deeds. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And then he makes this statement, says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I don't know what happened to him, but the Spirit was obviously powerfully at work. Here's a man that has been, he was probably a co-conspirator with Brabus. He was a high-profile criminal. He had lived a disgraceful life, and he's saying, I get it. All I've done deserves this cross. I'm getting what I deserve for my life. And, when, and he's gasping for breath in these last moments, just trying to pull himself up on that cross beam so he can breathe. His soul is just dangling over the pit of hell for all eternity, and he makes this one request. The only thing that ever matters in life that he ever did makes this one request, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And what did the Lord say? In all of his pain, and all of his weakness, and all of his agony, he looks over, looks at the man and says, and today you will be with me in paradise. And so it was. Your past doesn't matter at the cross because we don't serve a Savior who recoils at shamed people. That thief ought to give us hope, give any sinner hope. If ever a man who was so shamed and unworthy of salvation could get it, and here you see Jesus delighting to give it to him, one such as that. God doesn't recoil at shamed people. The cross and all of its disgrace really ought to remind us of many, many things. But one is that as disgraceful as it was, our Savior identifies with disgraced people. He loves disgraced people. He's willing to receive you if you will just come to him. And so Jesus, so Jesus carried the shame of our weakness, our disgrace, also our rejection, verses 38 through 44. Um, Jesus carried the shame of our weakness and our disgrace, but also this rejection. And everyone experiences rejection in life. Everyone experiences rejection. In fact, anyone who's been in vocational ministry for any length of time gets it. (laughs) But all of you also get it. We all experience rejection. And the cross reminds us how deep was our rejection of God. And that's the rejection that really matters most. Isaiah 53.3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces... He was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus was despised and rejected by men. He was not a celebrity. And he didn't look like someone that just everyone just fell in love with and they just loved him and he was was despised. He was despised. They loved him when he did miracles and who wouldn't? Anybody would love you if you came around healing people and doing all these wonderful things and But you look at John 6, the minute he started preaching and telling people who he really was, they rejected him. On that day, he probably had 20,000, 15, 20,000 Galileans that rejected him. And all he had left is this little band of disciples. And he's asking, and what what about you? Where will you go? To which Peter says, where will we go? You alone have the words of eternal life, and we've believed probably the worst sermon in all of history (laughs) from a human standpoint to have that many people just walk out. 
But Jesus was despised. Matthew says the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they mocked Jesus and kept mocking Jesus. Those who passed by, they derided him. Even the robbers who hung next to Jesus mocked him. You know what's very interesting about this is what do all these people have in common? They're all Jews. They're all Jewish people. They're all people who are familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. Maybe not the thief on the cross, but... Most of these people were very familiar, very literate in the Old Testament scriptures. And these are all the people who are hurling insults and rejecting the Messiah, whom they should have recognized. Matthew gives us a sampling of the insults, and the insults directed at Jesus, they're about his identity. King of the Jews, Son of God, King of Israel. Jesus, you don't deserve any of these titles. You're on a Roman cross. You're none of this. And he'd entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, five days before this, to the shouts of these crowds, and they're excited, and they're waving palm branches, a symbol of nationalism and freedom from Rome, by the way. They're thinking, this is the one. This is our political savior. He's going to deliver us from the Romans. He's going to free us from Caesar. And they're excited, and then nothing happens. This would have been the time, you know, if you're going to, You have all of this energy. You want to capitalize on the energy and build the excitement. And this would have been the time to establish the kingdom and do something and to take down Caesar. And nothing, nothing happened those five days. Nothing significant as far as they were concerned happened those five days. And five days later, you see thousands of people showing up, Jews entering Jerusalem that Friday, seeing a man they thought might be the Messiah, now on a cross, and they're thinking, false Messiah. Jesus wasn't the first person that uh, crowds of Jews thought might be the Messiah, by the way. They were, they were very susceptible. to. They were suffering under the Romans. They wanted freedom, so they were looking for a Messiah. They were always looking for a Messiah. It's not so different as, than we are. You know, when I was in the political arena, people are always looking for someone to save them from something. But... Uh, the Jews, they were looking for someone to save them from Rome, and they kept looking. And there was a whole string of false messiahs, people that would follow and people that would follow them, and then what would happen? False messiah would gin up a crowd, and then he'd be killed. And so what happened with Jesus? And what are they thinking? Well, he's just another false messiah. He ginned up all these people, got us all excited, and then he's dead. I guess he wasn't the true messiah. So they're throwing insults at him. If you're truly the Messiah, what are you doing on a cross? You who would, verse 38, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Get off the cross. If that's really who you are, prove it. Jesus made that claim in John 2. That's the very beginning of his ministry when he says, I'm going to restore, this temple is going to be destroyed. It's going to be rebuilt in three days. And John says, he's referring to the temple of his body. Well, they didn't care about any of that or understanding it. They just are using his own words a bit against him. Saying, if you have any power at all, come down off the cross. Any power whatsoever, come off the cross. And so they keep heaping insults upon him. Can't even save yourself. Come down, Jesus. Come down and then we'll believe. But the very interesting thing is that if he had come down off the cross, belief wouldn't matter. If Jesus had saved himself, he couldn't save others. You know, King, Matthew presents Jesus as the long-awaited king. Kings have kingdoms. And what's in a kingdom? Well, people. People and land. 
Now, what would happen if Jesus had came off the cross? Well, there wouldn't be any people because there wouldn't be anybody saved. So there wouldn't be any people in this kingdom. And in what sense is a kingdom a kingdom that doesn't have people? Well, it's not a kingdom. And what's a king without a kingdom? Well, he's not a king. He had to remain on the cross if he was going to save his people, create a kingdom, and be a king. And that's exactly what he determined to do. These little creatures that are mocking him didn't understand any of that and didn't want to. All they could see is what's directly before him. Man on a cross, clearly not the Messiah. Cursed is anyone who hangs upon a tree. That's what it says in the book of Deuteronomy. The religious leaders didn't care about any of this. The Lord said, but they went one step further. Perhaps the deepest wound of all of them is when they said, he trusts in God, let God deliver him if God actually desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. The son of God had enjoyed the son, the father, the son, the Holy Spirit had been in perfect harmony and unity, enjoying this love back and forth between one another for all eternity past. Father loving the Son, Son the Spirit, Spirit the Father, Spirit the Son, all back and forth from eternity past. And then God becomes a man and dies for us. And then you have these humans that He created who are mocking Him and saying, if the Father even loves Him, that would have stung Psalm 42, 9 and 10 says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Where is God? And they taunt him. And this would have been, as Psalm 42 is saying, like a a deadly wound. Some insults hurt. Words hurt much. Words often hurt much more than physical pain. And they stick with you much longer than physical pain, for sure. Those who mock Jesus represent all of humanity. Sin hates righteousness, and sinners naturally hate God. And so it's very reasonable to say if we had been there, we wouldn't have been one of those turning to others saying, hey, stop mocking him. Or No, we would have been hurling the insults at Jesus just as much. By taking on flesh, the Son identified with us in our fallen condition and identified with rejection, knew what it was to be rejected, knew what it was to be shamed. In Romans 5.8, I'm reminded of that. It says, but God demonstrated his own love for us. And what? Well, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were in the crowd mocking him, hurling insults, he remains on the cross to die. That is love. Christ carried so much shame. So much shame. Shame of weakness, shame of disgrace, shame of rejection, and all of this shame that he received that you and I can share in his glory and future kingdom. He was brought low that we would be brought high to reign with him forever. You know, shame, as I said, it sticks like tar. It's very difficult to get rid of. Very, very difficult to get rid of. But there is at least one person who does understand it. And I hope that we are like him as well. But there is at least one person that understands it and can help. Back in uh, antebellum America, there were slaves that in their shame and in their misery as slaves, they came up with a song that goes like this. They said, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows the sorrow. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen, nobody but Jesus. 
And that gave them comfort and hope that there's someone who gets it. Jesus is the one who was shamed and welcomes shamed people. So let us go to him. Let me close in prayer. And I think Darwin has said, and then you're dismissed. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son. We, all of us in this fallen world, we understand what it is to feel and experience shame. And you sending your son, he understands what it is to be shamed, much more than we do even. Thank you for... Thank you for this gift. And Lord, we just thank you for being one who's called us into fellowship with you. It's not as if you recoil from us or turn away from us or you want us to clean ourselves up before we're acceptable to you. But no, you came to where we are in all of its shame and all of its despair and disgrace, identified with us, taking our shame upon yourself, our sin upon upon yourself, and then dying for us. Lord, I pray if there is one here that is struggling in this area, is dealing with shame and is just living in the shadows, pray that they would turn to you and that, they would, and that you would put people in their life that uh, can minister to them in an appropriate way, in a way that's helpful in ministering your word and changing them. Thank you for this time, Lord. Thank you for this church and for Pastor Cliff. Bless us as we go our separate ways. We ask that in your name. Amen. Are dismissed. <coughs>